We open this morning to Mark 13. We're hopping around a little bit here in the next month, but we will get through Mark unless the Lord returns beforehand. Um, but we are pressing on, regardless of what the next few weeks may appear to be. Did you hear the, what we just sang? Did you hear the words that just came out of your mouth? I have to say it again. I'm looking at it now, verse 5. Two wonders here that I confess. My worth and my unworthiness. <laughs> then it says, my value, do you believe it, Christian? I hope you do. I pray you'll receive this assurance that's clearly in the Word this morning. My value fixed. Fixed in Christ. My value fixed. My ransom paid at the cross. That's powerful, man. I love it. Praise Jesus. All right. And we need His help. You know, talk about unworthiness. Uh, Thanking God as I open to Mark 13, the Olivet Discourse, and try to speak with you about the end times and interpret these passages right and do it justice and talk about unworthiness. I feel it more than ever, and a lot of what I'm going to say this morning is barely going to get into Mark 13, but it's things I just felt like I needed to say. So this is going to be sort of an odd sermon. Uh, and it, it, I encourage you, and please take notes, because I don't want to repeat it each time. Um, but I think it's going to be helpful as we get into Mark 13. And so a lot of what is going to be stated this morning is just preliminary stuff. Uh, and so I ask for your patience I'm certainly praying for God's help. That's been actually, it should be a theme always, right? But it seems uh, more specific here recently, just in my life personally, just specifically calling out help. Help. Right? It's such an encompassing thing, right? There's been so many things that, as I'm thinking about things that y'all are going through, and I'm thinking help. Right? As I think about things the church is wrestling with and going through, I'm thinking, help, God. And, and then as I'm thinking personally about things I am going through, and it's, I'm, I know I'm tearing up right now, it's not like there's a lot of stuff, even in my own life, but it's just, it's just, you know, it's like there's just some things, and I'm like, help. And you add it all up, right? And you're like, it's just a quick prayer. <laughs> it means a whole lot. And God is listening, and He is our helper. And so as I come to this text and I'm like, you know, this week I'm studying and I think I found a direction to go and I'm like, oh, yes. And then I'm like, nope, that's not it. Help. <laughs> it's a theme. Will you pray with me? Lord, we turn now to you and open your word here to Mark 13 and we're asking for help as we approach this. We know you put it here for us to, to know it. Lord, we want to be faithful to preach it. 
not ignore it for what it's worth. So God, help us that your spirit would intervene and Take up all that space between my ignorance and and our need to hear from you in this text. So we're asking for help. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh... Now, um, this text uh, represents one of the most amazing predictions of future events, and it's given to us by our Lord, right? So let's just read the first 13 verses, even though, like I said, I'm not really going to preach through those 13 verses, just going to give... Some information here this morning that's going to be preliminary, and then we're going to get into it as we move along through 13. So follow me. 13, verse 1. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Now, one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. And while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across the temple, Peter, James, John, Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus told them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. But you, be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say. But say whatever is given to you at that time for it isn't you speaking but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father's child. Children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. I said we were going to read through 13. I think we should read the rest of the way so you have it all. So we're going to read through verse 37, so keep following. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray 
it won't happen in winter, for those will be days of tribulation. The kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. If the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would be saved. But he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. Then if anyone tells you, see, here is the Messiah, see there, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. That's how bad it is. 23, you must watch. I have told you everything in advance. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He will ascend He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Learn this lesson from the fig tree As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that He is near at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. It's like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, be alert. Since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at the crowing of the rooster or early in the morning, otherwise when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. Be alert. So here we have... That's what we see now when I say, I felt like I need to read the whole thing. When I say uh, this text represents one of the most amazing predictions of future events, you can see. If any text could prove the divine claims of Jesus, well, this is a great text to do it with. He, he tells the disciples that the temple will be destroyed, right? Just if we're looking at the first couple verses there. And everybody knows that that did, in fact, happen in A.D. 70. And so I think if we just stopped right there, right, people should look at this and be convinced, even at that, just those first two verses of this chapter, they should look and be convinced that He is God, that Jesus is divine, right? How else could He predict such a thing, Right? And I would say also, if that's the case, this also is a text that would point to the reliability of the Scriptures. Here we have a God, right? In Christ, Jesus, the God-man, predicts the temple will be destroyed. In fact, we know that it was destroyed. And we have His Word, right? It's reliable. 
He said, this is going to happen. And what happened? It happened. So we have Jesus divine. What he says will happen does happen. But this very text that showcases, and we could go on these points, this very text that showcases these things, that provides evidence even of Jesus' divinity, uh, provides assurance for us that his word is reliable. This text has been attacked and used to claim the exact opposite. Bertrand Russell wrote why he is not a Christian, and he cited this text as the key reason for rejecting Christianity. People try to use this particular text to disprove Christianity. And I was just, you look at that and you say, well, how is that? Given that it seems most provably true, right? Even some of what Jesus says there in verse 2 came to fruition in AD 70, right? It happened right there in the first century and some other things. So how is it that they use this to disprove Christianity, right? Well, it has to do with verse 30. If you look there, it has to do with his his own coming in the clouds that he says there in verse 30. And this is significant that he says there, because this is all one discourse. And he says there that he is coming in the clouds at the end of the age. He says, truly I tell you, when he says that, he says, truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so guys like Bertrand Russell say, see, Jesus said he would come back in one generation, but he didn't. So here we have the credibility of Jesus collapse in on itself. And guys like Mr. Russell say, this is why I'm not a Christian and nobody else should be either. Jesus said he was coming back, but he couldn't get it done. So they're reading that. That's their conclusion. Now regardless of your view of the Olivet Discourse and where you will land on some of the specifics as it relates to the end times, one place we all must land, and certainly have already landed as Bible-believing Christians, right? Which is it's part of our confession. It's what we occasionally read here together on Sunday mornings. In fact, we just read it in the Nicene Creed, uh, written in 325 A.D. So it's been a long-standing commitment, Right? That as followers of Christ, we believe and await Jesus' literal return to the earth. Our own confession says that Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. So regardless of our position, and there will likely be many once we're out, once we make it out of, of Mark 13, uh, even I suspect that not everybody will agree with everything that I say up here uh, after we're all done with it. But what we will agree with, right, is that Jesus Christ will return. And what we do believe and what we do confess is that Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. Yes, amen. Again, amen. Okay, we'll do it later. Uh, Jesus was asked many questions throughout his earthly ministry. 
and here to the question about the end times, and this is what caused me pause. To the question about the end of the age, he gives what is his longest recorded answer in Scripture to any question asked of him. You think of that. Just that alone says we should consider very seriously God's teaching on this topic. I was initially planning to race through this to get some to get to some ideas that I had to emphasize in Mark about you know Christmas is coming up in December and it's not going to be the case. We're going to be here. Right? God is wanting us to take this very seriously. Clearly, He intends to prepare us in our faith through this text. Clearly, He intends to, to mature us in our faith through this text. Surely, He intends to strengthen us in our faith through this text. It's why He gave us such a long answer. I have been guilty, and I know many of you have been guilty of saying, and I quote, these words from myself and others, my eschatology is way underdeveloped, but it doesn't really matter. And, and may, I'm, I'm like adding, these aren't exact quotes, but, but that's the attitude, right? My, an eschatology is the study of the end times, okay? So my eschatology is way underdeveloped, and the attitude could be, and it doesn't really matter because who can really know these things? Right, And so what happens is that we don't spend much time or give much thought to God's instruction on this particular topic. And you've heard the jokes I know I have regarding various views of the end times. Here's one. Some say they're an amillennialist. Some say a millennialist is referring to the thousand year reign of Christ. Okay, And we'll talk about that in a minute. But some say they're an amillennialist, others say they're postmillennialist, still others say they're premillennialist, but I'm a panmillennialist because I believe that it's all going to pan out in the end. <laughs> right? So these are kind of some of the jokes. And honestly, I, I want to hold on to that joke for a while because there's something about that that I pray we'll grab hold of, actually. All right, honestly, I think there's something good that could be about that attitude that we want to embrace in our, in our body, right? It, it, there's something healthy about it, right? To understand that, that some of these passages regarding the prophecies of the end time, it is very difficult to interpret, and it is important for us to be gracious with one another in our disagreement over these things. And if, if God really wants us to know it, right, and we, we really study it, we'll begin to be convicted, you know, ab about what we are studying, right? And probably what will happen is we begin to come, become convicted about what we're studying, we'll have different points of conviction. But I don't think, I, and I think, I know for me that's probably one reason why I've just kind of like, I've studied it initially and then I've kind of, since I've been patched, kind of stepped back away from it a little bit. But I think we should be able to be mature enough in our faith to handle that. Right? And, and be gracious enough with one another in our disagreements as we go through this. Uh, and so, 
the problem that I would have with the joke, though, is, is that if it, right, to conclude it's not something, to conclude that this topic is not something we need to study or give much thought or ask the Holy Spirit to help us have a better understanding of these texts, to the degree we say it's all going to work out in the end and that reflects an attitude or that, that attitude is reflective of a position that communicates, I don't really need to study this, or uh, to the degree that, that, that we have an attitude that takes the position that I don't really need to pay attention to the prophetic pieces or points of Scripture or have a position on it, I think that is wrong. Okay? Okay? Again, this is Jesus' longest recorded answer to any question asked of him. And you have Revelation, right? We have other end-time prophecy in the Old Testament. And God tells us that his word, what do we learn? That his word in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all scripture is inspired of him and all of it is without error and all of it is profitable for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that a man of God, what does it say? Yes, might be equipped, might be complete, equipped for every good work. So, the teaching on the end of the age is part, I would say, if I take that in 2 Timothy 2 and I apply it here, that means the teaching on the end of the age here in Mark 13 and other places is part of the equipping ministry of the Word. All right? That's so we can't shy away from it. I think that's what the text... We can't ignore it. We can't avoid it. We can't dismiss it. Because if we do, that will leave us, as a church, less equipped. And I've been guilty of all this. Okay? Because it's hard. And it can be confusing, especially when scholars and pastors you respect land in very different places, right? It's not like you can just, on this topic, it's not like you can just go to one book that, that you know, all your, your respectable theologians and stuff all agree on, oh, okay, that's, I get it now. It doesn't work that way. I wish so much that, I've been searching for that book <laughs> all week and even before. So, but, I, but here I need to, I also want to take this time to be up front with you, okay? Because I do know a little bit about the angle I'll be coming from, and I want to be up front with you about that, okay? So while I think there are many difficulties with respect to the topic, and I don't claim to have the answers, in fact, to many questions that would be and have been asked of me on this talk, Topic, and you probably know me and hear me saying these types of things, I often find myself saying to you, I don't know. I'm uncertain. You know, I'll give you my position on something, you'll say, well, that doesn't seem to fit together with it. I was like, yeah, I know, that's hard. Right? And so while some of that has been due to my lack of paying attention or avoiding the topic, but some is just flat out due to the difficulty. The fact is, while in seminary, I, I did study this topic more extensively 
I've revisited it on occasion, depending on the discipleship conversations that I'm in or the text I'm studying. And of course, our preaching schedule today lands a smack dab in the middle of it. And it requires me personally, it requires my undivided attention and an intensive study right now to be faithful in shepherding you. And so I have been, and I want to assure you, I will continue to study hard. And I have been revisiting this topic as if for the first time. And I want to speak to that this morning. That over the last couple of weeks, as I've been studying this, and coming back to this study of the times of the Olivet Discourse, right? It has been refreshing to my soul, okay? It has been an encouragement to my faith. And how I'm reminded that these passages and other passages like this, the Holy Spirit provides for me and He provides for us as points of devotional meditation that nourish the soul. Right? This isn't something I just need to study for you so I don't look like an idiot when I stand up here. Because the fact is, at the end of the day, depending on what opinion I espouse anyway, you'll think I'm an idiot. Right? So, so it doesn't matter for that reason. It's, I'm not just studying it and getting into it so that I can teach it. But it is kept in front of me as a point. It is to be kept in front of me. And I think and I pray that at the end you'll feel the same way that it is to be kept in front of you as a point of personal engagement and devotion with your Lord. I pray this is what results for all of us during our time here in the Olivet Discourse. Not, I can't believe he thinks that. <laughs> you know, Or I can't believe, you know, he didn't say that. There'll, there'll be plenty of room for that. We can discuss that for at the end, though. What results is drawing near to the Savior. So that being said, while I think there are difficulties, I also feel confident about some answers. And I hold that confidence loosely, okay? Uh, but I also do feel confident about some answers. And so I want to be upfront about that. There are three mainline views that influence... And pan mill isn't one of them, okay? There are three mainline views that influence these things, as we mentioned earlier, premillennial, amillennial, and postmillennial. And I want you to know, just up front, that I hold wholeheartedly to premillennial position. Right Now within that, that still doesn't give you much. If you've studied the end times, you're like, okay. Well, that tells me some things, but it still leaves a lot out there, right? And as we unpack, you'll see that. But that means, so when I say, if you're new to this, when I say I hold to a premillennial position, what that means is I believe the Scripture clearly teaches that Christ will physically return to the earth and set up a worldwide kingdom and reign here on the earth for a thousand years. Okay? Now, I want to be clear. The other views, the amillennial, the postmillennial, all these views are within the boundaries of evangelical, evangelicalism, Protestantism. They each believe, as we said earlier, in the literal, physical return of Christ to the earth. Okay? 
Now, some major distinctions that I think is relevant for us to point out. And again, I'm not trying to, to bring about uh, divisiveness by saying some of these points of distinction. All right? It, it's just, it will help you know why, when we do begin to get into it, why I'm coming at it and, or the direction for which I'm coming at it, okay? Which is going to influence my interpretation. And I can't, there won't be the time in Sunday morning at each time as we preach through these things for me to like explain every other view, et cetera, et cetera. It'd be very difficult to do. And so we'll just have to point you to other readings to be able to, in your own personal study. But so some major distinctions, okay, here they are. The premillennialist, and I encourage you to take notes, probably should have provided an outline there on the back for you, but didn't. The premillennialist sees the messianic kingdom as a literal kingdom that awaits us in the future, while the amillennialist and postmillennialist believe we spiritually experience that kingdom right now. And now, again, just be gracious with me here. These are very broad, sweeping to help us kind of move forward. So what I'm saying is is you're like, well, I consider myself this, but that didn't really represent me. It probably doesn't, okay? So this is very broad sweeping. And it's what kind of makes it a little bit difficult, but I think we got to start somewhere, right? So uh, premillennialists believe there is a resurrection before uh, the thousand-year reign of Christ. This could be helpful because there's lots of questions that come uh, that is, the premillennialists believe there are two resurrections seen in Scripture, whereas an amillennialist and a postmillennialist believe there's one. The premillennialist sees the rapture and the second coming as separate events. Okay, the premillennialist sees the rapture and the second coming as separate events, while the amillennialist and postmillennialist see it as the same event. The premillennialist says that the binding of Satan hasn't happened yet, but will happen in the future during the millennial reign of Christ. But the amillennialist and postmillennialist teach the binding of Satan is present. One of the stronger points to a premillennialist position, in my opinion, is its commitment to faithful to, to faithfully and consistently use what is known as a grammatical, historical, literary view of interpretation. Some of you are like, whoa. All right. Now you say, is this really for... I mean, we have a class right now going on about how to interpret the Bible. So yes, this is a matter that, that all Christians should engage in how to do biblical interpretation, right? And so when I say that, that I think the premillennialist position is, uses a more consistent grammatical, historical, literary view of interpretation. That is, and what I mean by that is that is their approach to understanding and interpreting the scripture has its aim to discover the original intent of the passage and the belief is that that intent can be known and that there are not hidden in the text secret meanings. 
Okay, so that's where I'm coming from. Now, I want to be clear too. Those, because you're like, I know you're just itching. You're almost tempted to say it out loud right now. But now those who hold different positions have literal hermeneutic in place, but meaning how to study the Bible. They, they look at that very similarly, but it's just not employed, I would argue, in the same consistent manner. Okay? Right? Now, again, this doesn't mean that premillennialist folks like myself don't have points of disagreement among each other. Well, I would argue we rest on a stronger, more biblical interpretive approach of the scriptures. It doesn't mean there aren't weaknesses and difficulties in our argument. And so you see it's complex. The critique of the pre-millennialist position to the amillennialist and post-millennialist would be that they over-spiritualize symbols and types that, that have, we would argue, pre-millennialists would argue that those that they over-spiritualize some of the symbols and types in scriptures that, that have literal meaning and can be understood using a grammatical, historical, literary view of interpretation. Okay. Now, again, I pray that, that you're not like, what is it that you will dig into this? This is exciting. This is exciting stuff. And, and, and the Lord puts it here. <laughs> For us to build our faith. And uh, so, so let's continue pressing on here. I give these descriptions again. I want to clarify. Not to create a party spirit in this congregation. But so that we can better understand the differences. And also to give you the lens I'm going to be attempting to work off of as I preach through this passage. It just seems right and fair. So for those hearing this view for the first time... You may want to know, well, where does a premillennialist view fit within the context of church history? Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked, right? Premillennialism was viewed and embraced by the early church and early church fathers, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, Arrhenius, and early Augustine. Now, Augustine we find out later changed his mind, as I have changed my mind on this topic, and so perhaps many of you, but he later changed his mind to a more allegorical approach, and uh, Luther and Calvin um, share that. They're popular, two of the popular reformers, Luther and Calvin, were amillennialists, okay? It's yet, some popular names you might recognize that were post-reformers uh, Post-reformer teachers, you could say, uh, saw that saw premillennialism in the scripture. You might recognize these names: Jonathan Edwards, John Gill, Charles Spurgeon. All right. So now we open this morning to Mark 13, and we don't have much time. <laughs> so you get what I'm saying. It, it just felt like I should give you some of that as as some background, so you know where I'm coming from, and uh, can, I think that will enable you, because I don't, like, as a, as a believer on your own, in devotion, to, to wrestle and study this on your own as well, so uh, instead of trying to figure out, you know, where, where I'm coming from, why did I say this, why did we, so, 
So that's what I hope that's helpful. As we open this morning in Mark 13, we look there. Here Jesus provides an answer to the disciples' questions that reveals details about future events that will precede the return of Christ to the earth. The answer Jesus provides the disciples is also found in Matthew 24 and 25 and Luke 21. Right? So one extensive work that I have read on this topic states this. It says the content, contents of the Olivet Discourse are highly debated and almost every verse is contested and interpreted by Bible scholars differently. Isn't that funny? It's funny to you. Yeah. Uh, but that, hey, we all have this responsibility to, though, to wrestle with it and say, all right, help us, Lord. We're not just going to avoid it and say, well, we can't really know. No, let's press in and see what we can know. And, and you know what? And then as we actually come under conviction about what's there, like, and even if that conviction becomes different, like we'll sharpen each other. Right? That's what I think is supposed to happen. So, so let's get excited and not scared or, or afraid to have difference of opinion even on this issue. And, and yeah, so we press forward. Uh, this portion of Scripture is known, as we've stated now several times, and, and probably, well, I don't know, mine doesn't, but uh, some of you might have a heading that calls it the Olivet Discourse in your Bible. Uh, this is what it's been known as, and the reason it's known as the Olivet Discourse and these three Gospels that we just referenced is quite simply because it took place on the Mount of Olives. Uh, and that's interesting. It took place on Wednesday of Passion Week. Thursday, he would celebrate the Passover. Friday, he would be crucified. The disciples do not know this. Okay, and this is important in terms of our interpretation. I think very important, right? Like contextually, what's happening? The disciples don't know this. Now they know it, right? So this is Wednesday. They're having this discussion. He gives this long answer, right? And and on Friday he's going to be killed. Now they know, but they don't know. What do you mean? Well, Jesus has told them three times, right? But he's predicted his death to them three times, telling them, and we'll quote, he says, see, we are, going, we are going up to Jerusalem, he's telling them, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And then he, he spells it out for them. And then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise three days later. So he's told them this three times in the Gospel of Mark, and there seems to be little evidence that they understand what he's telling them. And now here they are, think of it, and now here they are on the Mount of Olives just outside the temple. They've had some intense, very tense interactions with religious leaders. Jesus had pronounced judgment against them. In fact, just that day, just the day before, Tuesday of that week, they had witnessed Jesus for the second time go into the temple, throw people out turn over tables and rebuke them for how they were making a mockery out of God's house and turning it into a marketplace. Remember that. And he told them, he told them, hey, it, this is supposed to be a house of prayer and you are making it a den of thieves. And now here we are. So that happened Tuesday. And now here we are on Wednesday, walking out of the temple, 
Tense encounters had just happened earlier in the day. In 13.1, they're leaving the temple, and the disciples say, Teacher, look. What massive stones. What impressive building. Wow. Wow. Look at this place. Now, you've been there, right? Like, I've been to Chicago, you know, Chicago or other, like, structures and stuff where you've seen. It's just like each time you go, you're like, wow. This isn't the first time. They've been around the temple all week. This isn't the first time. And it's just, it's just wow. They're awestruck by it. And so they're, this is not the first time they've seen it, but they're just awestruck. What impressive. And let me just hang out there for a minute. It was impressive. All right? It was impressive. A wonder of the ancient world. You notice Jesus, though, didn't have the same response. Talk about that. But here is the temple, this impressive temple. It had been destroyed, right? Zerubbabel started to rebuild but didn't finish. Herod now has been at it for 50 years, which is interesting. Herod's, this is Herod's temple. Okay, he's rebuilding it. That, that comes, that, that's an interesting point. That could come into play later. Fifty years in the making. Solomon's temple been torn down. And hear this: the temple. These what? Imp- look at these buildings. Impressive stones. This temple took up thirty-five acres of ground. Right. Thirty-five acres of ground. Kyle, what did we on here? You told me. You remember how many acres is this block? little over three acres. Okay, this, this block that, that our church owns is a little over three acres. The temple took up 35 acres of ground. Bolivar High School campus, uh, parking and intermediate school. So Bolivar High School campus, Bolivar High School campus parking, the intermediate school and parking, the baseball fields over there, and the soccer fields, that's 36 acres. How do you know? Well, I called Kyle and I asked him. Okay. <laughs> yep. And then he also told me that, that uh, Dunnigan Park is 44 acres. The entire hospital campus over there at CMH is 30 acres. So this temple structure was massive. It was massive. It's like it was a wonder of the ancient world. It was massive. They had every reason to be impressed. It was impressive. The, the historian Josephus, who lived at that time, tells us that some of the stones that made up the temple were 60 feet long, right? right? And they didn't have caterpillar, okay? They didn't have caterpillar, All right? But some of these stones were 60 feet long. 11 feet high and 8 feet deep, each stone weighing over a million pounds. What does Jesus say? Not one stone will be left upon another? Right? right? It is said that the temple of Herod in Jerusalem looked like a mountain of marble decorated with gold. The wall of the temple, 150 feet high. Sanctuary, right, 150 feet high. In the meeting space right here, I don't know. I keep looking to Kyle. I was going to measure before I came in here, but it's not 30 feet. Is it 25 feet maybe? Probably less than 25 feet. I mean, 
150 feet high. It was impressive. The disciples are standing in awe. Nothing could destroy this, right? Nothing. Look at it. But Jesus there doesn't take much time, verse 2, to be impressed, does he? Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. What? I mean, there's lots of things we can predict and forecast, right? Like, because you can see ship, you can see patterns, and people can predict things. Even the weathers could, can be more, you know, you got the farmer's almanac, right, Brent? Like, that nails it. No, okay. But, but like, you know, different things can help you, okay? And you can see patterns, but this is like an unpredictable event, all right? Unless you know the future, that's what I'm saying, it speaks to the divinity of God. So interesting, if you were the disciples standing amazed at this, put yourself in their shoes, there you are, standing amazed at this massive temple, and you heard Jesus say in verse 2, see these great buildings, not one stone will be left upon another, right, all will be thrown down, right, if you just started hanging out with Jesus in that moment, you'd be tempted to laugh, (laughs) what does he mean by that? And you'd certainly be tempted to think he must be speaking like metaphorically right now or symbolically. There must be some spiritual meaning behind this, right? There's no way this is coming down, but they've been around Jesus long enough to know that what he is talking about is future events related to his kingdom. They know he's talking about future events related. Now, do they always understand? No. But they know he's talking about his kingdom. This is another important interpretive point, okay, as we get into the rest of the discourse, that he's talking about his kingdom. He does this to them regularly, of course, in terms of how he talks about things, and, and they're not sure what to make of it. But, but Jesus is preaching. This they know for sure, and we do too, because he told us in Mark 1 what he was going out proclaiming, right? Mark 1, 22, I think, that Jesus is preaching all about the kingdom. That is the theme of the good news of Jesus Christ that we learn about there in Mark 1. That, that, what does it say? It says that the kingdom, he is proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come near. Now that's confusing though. Right? And I think it's, it's confusing to them a little bit. And it's confusing to us sometimes as we read it. Because, because as, we, as we study this, what I think we'll learn is that the kingdom of God is here in Jesus, but I also think we'll see that it's near in Jesus, and I also think we'll see that it's not yet in Jesus. It's yet to be, there's things yet to be fulfilled. Some make the mistake, and I say, or, or some make the mistake, and say that the Old Testament, that fulfillment of Old Testament kingdom promises means All those, and I think it's a mistake, okay, that that would say that all the fulfillment of Old Testament kingdom promises means all those that Jesus, so let me 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 start over, okay, because the words are important. (laughs) Uh, I think it's a mistake to say 
that Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament kingdom promises means all those promises are absorbed into Jesus. That means every type of symbol, every land promise, every blessing promised is absorbed into Christ. I don't believe that, right? I don't see it as all being absorbed into Jesus so that there's no literal fulfillment of those Old Testament promises and covenant and covenants. Well, a premillennial view would say something different. A premillennial view would say the fulfillment of kingdom promises in Jesus means that he literally brings those about. As he says, I think, in Matthew chapter 5, there in the Sermon of the Mount, on the mount, verse 18, he says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. And right there, we know from looking at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, so I just quoted 18, if you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, what we know is that Jesus is referring to the law and the prophets and saying, everything that has been predicted will happen. And so the background of the questions from the disciples in verse 4 is from the perspective of Jesus setting up his kingdom. Really important interpretive point here. The background of the question from the disciples seen there in verse 4 of the passage in front of you is from the perspective of Jesus setting up his kingdom. They still believe, the disciples still believe and are waiting for this to happen. They are not anticipating, even though he's told them, they are not anticipating that in a few days he will be dead. They were not anticipating, as we are now, that they, of course, were not thinking, I should say, as we are now, about his second coming. Right? So we're reading this, and, and that can mess up our interpretation, right? Like, like they were not th- thinking about his second coming. They were thinking about, he is the Messiah. Remember, they did believe this. It's partly what made his three-time predicting that he, his death so hard for them. Because they believed in in. All right, these things must literally be fulfilled that have been spoken about the Messiah in the Old Testament that our prophets have told us, right? And so they believe he's this Messiah. Peter, in chapter 8, had just confessed that when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Messiah. And Jesus told them, don't say anything. He warned them, don't, do not say anything. And what do these guys know? What are the disciples that just confess that he's the Messiah? What do they know about what the Messiah does? Also an important interpretive point. What does he do? He he sets up his kingdom and rescues them from political. So this looking at Old Testament, why are they so confused? Right? Well, the Messiah comes and sets up a kingdom and rescues them from political, social, and cosmic oppression. That's what the promises are all embedded into that. 
The messianic kingdom is filled with blessing and peace, not sickness, wars, and poverty. Additionally, remember, he told the disciples in Matthew 19, 28, Truly I tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, what does he tell them? He tells the disciples, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is why the disciples, in marching into Jerusalem for the Passover, they are arguing, hey, who gets to sit on your right and your left? They are expecting in the immediate future a literal fulfillment of these Old Testament kingdom promises. And so they ask, verse 4, read with me or follow, tell us. When will these things happen and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? They are ready to sit on their throne. And these questions about the end of the age, which is how Matthew states the question, so it helps us to use the other Olivet Discourses as they're represented because Matthew in 24 verse 3, he adds to the question, he says, that they asked, what is the sign of your coming and at the end of the age? So it's clear that they are talking about the end of the age, right? A a coming. What does coming mean? Coming means arrival and presence. When are you going? What they're asking is how soon, like, we're going to get to sit on our throne. When are you manifesting yourself as Israel's Messiah that we know that you are? When are you doing it? That is the nature of their question. They're asking about now. They're not thinking about his second coming. The disciples, having had Jesus as their teacher for the past few years, had likely reviewed and studied Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9. There, studying that, what would they hear? They would learn Zechariah, right? What did he prophesy? Well, he prophesied, just as we, we studied a few weeks back that Jesus, right, would come into Jerusalem riding, hum, riding on a donkey, be humble and riding on a donkey. So that's Zechariah 9. The disciples would likely know Zechariah 9. Here Jesus is, humble, coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. Well, what's Zechariah 10 say? Zechariah 10, then, they would think, hey, that's probably going to happen next. And Zechariah 10 says the bow of war will be, will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. So they are asking, Jesus, when are you going to physically rule over the earth from sea to sea? And if Jesus did teach them the scriptures and teach them Zechariah. They also likely had in mind Zechariah 14, which outlines a tribulation for Israel. Okay, and then his return there in Zechariah 14, his return to the Mount of Olives to rescue Jerusalem and set up a kingdom. So they are right in the spot where they're thinking, it is it about to go down? Because that's what Zechariah 14 says It's all about to go down, and and here we are in this setting. So these are things we're going to wrestle with and talk through. Here in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus gives the answer to the disciples that follows even the pattern, I would say, of Zechariah 14, asking 
answering the disciples' question, when will this happen? And what will the sign be when all these things are about to happen? And so we unpack the discourse throughout the next several weeks. Uh, We'll understand, right, that some of it uh, has been fulfilled in A.D. 70. Well, I will also argue, though, that, that most of it is yet to be fulfilled in the future. And it is mostly about that. And so there are things that happened in their lifetime. And there are things that we don't know when they are going to happen but are still yet future. It's going to take some time. But it's going to be rich. All right? It's going to be good. I want to say again, I don't know all the answers. Right? But the Holy Spirit... Is going to encourage and, and stir in us and promote in us a passion for his kingdom. Because that's what I already see happening for me, regardless of what position you end up landing on. I think he's going to holy, and I just want you to pray. I'm sharing this because I want you to be praying for this. That the Holy Spirit, as we study his word and study this particular topic, that he will stir in us and promote in us more of a passion for his kingdom a greater love and a greater desire. As that, Think of that. If studying this promotes more of a passion for His kingdom purposes, right? how much more will we in our lives and in our happenings here on this earth be crying out for His will to be accomplished here? Right? So I think it, it's going to do that. I think the more we understand this, the more we will in our own personal lives and as a church cry louder and louder with more and more passion for his kingdom to come, right? And I think we can all get there. And so I'm excited to dig in here and see where he has us land. Before we close, I want to return to what we can all agree on is this. He is coming Jesus Christ will return visibly and personally in glory to the earth. Amen? Let's do it again. I'll try to read it better, and you try to do your amen better. All right? And then we're going to have, if we have a baptism today, as I'm reading that, if she could make her way up. Abby, are you there? Okay, come on, make your way up. Let's get her a mic and set up. And... While she's making her way to the front, I'm going to read this again, and you guys are going to say amen at the end. All right? Here we go. Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. Amen. Amen. That's